I'm Zivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zivyowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. I am thrilled to announce that Audible is the sponsor for this podcast. Thank you so much to Audible. If you don't know Audible, which would be surprising, but let's just pretend, Audible is the leading provider of spoken word entertainment and audiobooks, ranging from bestsellers to celebrity memoirs, news, business, and self-development. Every month, members of Audible get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection, and access to daily news digests. You probably know all this. You might not know how much I really enjoy Audible myself. Um, I recently listened to Neil Pastricha's How to Get Back Up, uh, his memoir, and it's stories about his mother and her life and things about being of Indian descent in America. Anyway, it was so good. Um, I listened to it while I tried to go on a hike one day. And um, Audible is just fantastic. And I'm thrilled because all of you guys listen to podcasts. You already like to listen to things. Audiobooks seem like a natural fit. So I'm thrilled to be bringing them to you. So please go to audible.com slash Zibby, or you can even text Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y, to 500-500. So please do go shopping. Think about trying out Neil Pasricha's book. That's really good. And check out Audible if you haven't already and try uh, listening to a book that way. It's a unique experience and it definitely adds something, especially for moms who don't have time to read. I'm here today with Janie Scott, who's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, A Singular Woman, The Untold Story of Barack Obama's Mother, and her latest book, The Beneficiary, Fortune, Misfortune, and the Story of My Father. The Beneficiary was chosen as one of the New York Times 100 Notable Books of 2019 and one of NPR's favorite books of 2019. A reporter for the New York Times from 1994 to 2008, she was a member of the Times reporting team that won the 2000 Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting. She currently lives in New York. Welcome. Thanks for coming on the show, Jenny. Thank you, Zibby. It's great to be here. Could you please tell listeners what The Beneficiary is about? The Beneficiary is a, is a family memoir spanning roughly three generations in my father's wealthy, aristocratic Pennsylvania family. It's set almost entirely on a roughly 800-acre British-style country estate a half hour outside of Philadelphia, a place that has been compared to kind of an American Downton Abbey, sort of plucked from the pages of Henry James or Jane Austen and floated across the Atlantic and wedged in among the swimming pools of Updike and Cheever. But it's also a kind of detective story, one child's attempt to understand a captivating but opaque parent and the family that produce them both. And it, the question that drives that is, how did the seemingly charmed life of my appealing, accomplished, but enigmatic father arrive at its self-destructive and perplexing end? Well, that was a great description. Thank you. <laughs> Good job. I've been thinking about it for a yeah, while. <laughs> I'm sure this isn't your first time, but anyway, it sounded great. So what made you want to tell the story? What made you want to delve into your own family and approach it with your reporter's eye? Well, I'd been a journalist for my whole career, and there are limitations to journalistic writing. And I had written a journalistic book, my, my previous book, and I was really interested in trying to force myself to learn to write in a different way. And I knew that one way possibly to 
challenge myself in that way was to take on something that had more emotional resonance for me than a lot of news stories do. You, you mean, it's good if a news story has emotional resonance, but you can't get too tied up in it. Whereas this was, A, I had wonderful material just because of the nature of my, my father's family and my own experience of growing up in the surrounded by them. But I was also, for that reason, fascinated by the the enigma of my father and felt quite, I think, devastated by his self-destruction. So it, it was a combination of a, of a literary urge to learn to write in a different way, combined with an opportunistic response to wonderful material and a deeply emotional feeling about my father. Do you feel like you got answers? Do you feel like you got a sense of closure that you were looking for? I certainly learned all sorts of things I would never have known before. Most people don't have the luxury of spending years poring over the papers and all the detritus that's left behind by in families, because many of them gets thrown out. We had the luxury that people had, there was space and so stuff was kept. In so la- I did- In the laundry room, right? Yes, exactly, in the ironing room. Ironing room, that's it, the ironing room. <laughs> so I learned, I learned a lot. I don't have any illusion that you can finally understand anyone really in, you know, in the round, like completely. So sure, there are questions that remain for me about my father. And I, I'm quite conscious of the possibility that if I read the book in 10 years, I'll think, well, why did you, why did you come to that conclusion? And as for closure, of course, I don't know if there's ever really closure, but I do feel like the, sh- the experience, anyone who's tried to do this, I think, has this experience that, that of taking all the sort of random colliding stuff in your head and in your past and piecing it together into a narrative is somehow therapeutic. Whether it's the narrative you would have produced 10 years ago or you'd produced, you know, 20 years from now, who knows? But there's a feeling of, yes, of getting things kind of under control. Well, there was certainly no lack of information. I feel like, no, I mean, it was amazing the depth and how much you could share with me about as a reader with so about so many different things related to the time period about which you were writing, wealth in America, how things have changed. I mean, it was great. Not just Thank your you. family, but just, uh, oh my gosh, it was amazing. So your father was mostly cared for by a French governess and you wrote his parents were an intermittent presence and they were called distant. And he said that they were unused to children. What effect do you think a childhood like this had on him? Well, it wasn't just a French governess. I mean, she lasted a a few years and then was hastily fired. And then there was a series of Irish cooks and maids and butlers. My father used to claim only half-joking that he spoke with an Irish accent to the age of nine because his parents were so absent a lot of the time. I think I'm not sufficiently well-versed in psychology and psychiatry to be able to speak authoritatively on this, but I think the experience of not having a single close parental bond with a parent or some kind of substitute parent over an extended period of childhood does have an effect on the formation of personality, etc. So I think my father, not to go too far out on a limb here, was very good at presenting a kind of a version of himself to the public, but the interior life was very much hidden. And it turned out, because I, in the course of this process, 
found his diaries, and which he had promised to me but then had not told me where they would be, it turned out that he was highly conscious of his interior life, but it was not something he ever shared with other people. So I think there's that. There, there is a sort of inaccessible quality to him that came from a self-protective thing that, that was related to his relationship, his, his complicated relationship with his mother in particular. Would you ever consider publishing his diaries? I've been asked that. I feel like I've invaded his privacy sufficiently okay. already. I feel like in today's day and age, like you need to leave a, a letter to your you know, ancestors being like, do not publish these works or what to do and not to do. You know? Yes, exactly. I think my father must have been ambivalent about it because he told me in my 20s that you would you get know, to read that, I, that, yes. that, that he wanted to give them to me when he died. But then he never told me where he was leaving them. So it's as though he didn't have the heart to burn them mm -hmm. or destroy them or, or tell me that he changed his mind, but he also was not willing, certainly not willing to have me see them while he was alive. I mean, it's hard. I mean, that would be a hard... I wouldn't want things, my children right? to yeah, read I, my Yeah, I was diaries. just thinking then, although my daughter <clears throat> did find my diaries from, from when I was a kid, so it's not like anything was really going on, but she's like, oh yeah, I read that whole cabinet of your stuff. Like, <laughs> you, what? Are you kidding me? Anyway. Who um, taught you to read? <laughs> yeah, I mean, at least she was reading. I mean, that's great. <laughs> so your parents then had a relationship where your father had some extracurricular activities and you said that they just didn't really make each other happy. And I was wondering, this is like totally private and you don't have to answer this. Like when you grow up with a marriage like that as a model, how does that affect your choice of spouse? And did you replicate that or did you go the other direction or did it have no effect at all? I think it's unquestionable it has an effect and I'm not entirely sure I can nail down all the ways. You know, they their marriage was functional. They lasted for 42 years before splitting up quite late. My father was an alcoholic, so that was a sort of sub-theme that was not even acknowledged or articulated as a problem until quite late. Uh, so there was a sort of passive-aggressive quality to their interactions. I think I emerged from that with a real wariness about the institution of marriage. I think I thought for many years that it wasn't something I was going to do. I eventually was in my, pretty much my late 30s, uh, mid-30s, was in love with someone who wanted very strongly to get married and have children. And I suspect that had I not encountered at that moment in my life a person that determined, um, <laughs> not to mention charming and appealing, uh, I might not have gotten married. So so I'm very glad that I did because, of course, having children is an extraordinary experience that I would have, I would probably have missed. So I was, I think I, it left me with a real wariness. And as for who I married, I was married to a man for 14 years who was totally different background from me, you know, a Southern California Jewish surfer. And then, not obviously that many other qualities as well, but that gives you some sense of the disparate nature of our the two of us. But we got along wonderfully and, and still do. And then after that, I now live with someone who also comes from an entirely different background. So I think I wasn't consciously fleeing that world. But the fact is, from the moment, from pretty early on, certainly by the time I got to college, the men who interested me were not people who came from the world that I came from. Funny how we can't really control who appeals to us, even though we might want to. This is just something I've been like, I'm just like armchair fascinated by, right? Who we're attracted to and 
even if it's self-destructive, why and where did that come from? Absolutely. And the problem is that in the sort of period in your life where you're most open, mm-hmm. you know, say 20s and 30s, you don't maybe even know yourself or understand your background well enough to know how it's playing into those decisions. In other words, you're not yet in yeah. therapy. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. Time hasn't revealed <laughs> some important answers yet. Do you think if your family had confronted the alcoholism, things would be completely different or it's hard to say, but. Um, yeah, it turns out I didn't fully understand this when I were, was starting to work on the book. I knew that there, there were a lot of people who drank too much in my family, in all different sides of my family, actually. But I didn't fully understand how deep and how widespread and how far back it went. And one of the stories in the family that had been buried was the death of my father's paternal grandfather, who was said to have died heroically in France in World War I, turned out to have shot himself. And it seems from everything I've sort of pieced together that he had a very serious drinking problem that was perhaps tied up with some kind of bipolar Mm -hmm. disease, which maybe all those things are sort of transmitted down the generations because there have been multiple suicides in the family and the presence of alcoholism is is Mm -hmm. undeniable. So that was at a time when people didn't even really use the term alcoholism. Mm -hmm. So what would have happened? I mean, now, of course, we're so conscious of it and guard against it. You know, my children have been propagandized from an early age that, you know, you have to be very careful because there's an innate vulnerability. Right. But even now, alcoholism is, I would say, or its connection to mental health issues is not fully explained, at least to the point where a layperson can see how that applies to their life. So I don't know. I mean, I, I it definitely, now that it's much more in the open, there's less alcoholism in the family. I don't know what would have happened back then when it wasn't really articulated in the way that it is. So I was at this event yesterday, speaking of bipolar and its connection to things. Apparently there's a group of boys in Southern California who have been like smoking pot all the time. And this whole group, it's a friend somebody it was somebody's friends kids and all his cohort of friends and because of this this entire group of boys has developed bipolar from this pot really? smoking i don't know anyway just throwing it out <laughs> wow as something interesting i heard yesterday to be investigated go ahead and do a whole piece on that uh, so this passage from your book really stuck with me you wrote land houses money wealth had tumbled into my father's family from one generation to the next you had a right to enjoy it an obligation to protect it, a duty to pass it on to your own unsuspecting children. It was a stroke of good fortune, of course, but what you could never know, starting out, was how those things would influence decisions you'd make over a lifetime. You might resolve to live as though wealth didn't exist, but sooner or later, it would probably insinuate itself into your thinking about jobs, profession, marriage, children. Some beneficiaries flourished, some didn't. For some, the impact of all that good fortune appeared to have been mixed. My father, I began to think, had sensed the conundrum early on. So what do you what do you make of all this? Well, it became a in my thinking as I worked on the book, it became kind of the theme of the book and it's mm-hmm. why I called the book the beneficiary because I thought that word although it's a somewhat legalistic word, there was something wonderfully ambiguous about it. Like, is this good or bad? And that's what I began to think about inheritance. You know, these things are passed along in, wealth is accumulated at different moments in American history and families want to 
endow their next generation or, or for several generations, pass on money, land, and also other things, values, genes, et cetera. And all of those things are kind of double-edged, I began to think. It's not to say it's universally bad or good. It's just ambiguous. And as for kind of who benefits really, you know, who comes out, you know, who benefits from the things that are passed on and who is hurt by it. That's like a complicated mathematical equation involving things like personality, genes, birth order, all sorts of stuff. So I'm not making an argument that wealth shouldn't be passed on. I was struck by how all this attention goes into figuring out the tax, you know, ways of dealing with it so that the minimum amount is taken up by the government and, and how to, you know, carry it on multi-generationally. And not so much thought is given to what effect does it have on the decisions that people make early in their life. Mm-hmm. Decisions you might make about, well, what kind of work do I want to undertake? Do I really need, how seriously do I need to take the obligation to support myself and a family? Or will I always be kind of buoyed by this? Mm-hmm. Decisions about what kind of a person to marry. And so I just think it's, it was very striking to me in working on this to see, A, how my father's family, going back to the first Gilded Age, operated very much the way wealthy people are operating now in terms of figuring out ways to protect their wealth and carry it on. But I didn't see a lot of evidence that a lot of concern was devoted to how do you, in that context, lead a productive, happy life where you feel the satisfaction of having created that life for yourself? And where'd you come out? (laughs) How do you do it? How do kids do it? Do you think? Well, I think, again, that depends on the person. I mean, in my family, Oh, well, here's what I can speak for myself. I never didn't go back there to live in that compound, Mm -hmm. which was not that common in my generation, but my father's generation, it was expected that you would come back and live there and that that was your sort of your duty to the family. I didn't choose to do that. And to my parents' credit, I was not encouraged to. It was like, go out, find out what you want to do that makes you happy. So I, you know, moved around the country and worked for newspapers and lived with, you know, a completely different kind of world. And now I feel that the life I created was the life I wanted. But I don't know that that's the answer for everyone. My grandmother, my father's mother, who was in many ways became the sort of emblem of that place, well-known, admired, it worked really well for her. It had something to do with her personality. She was the first in her generation, her relationship with her father. So it's just all quite murky, but I think deserves more attention than it perhaps gets. And then the Philadelphia story was based on her. Well, yes, perhaps, yes. As you know, my grandfather, who married into the family, wanted to be a playwright, Mm -hmm. studied playwriting at Harvard and met Philip Barry, who became one of the most successful playwrights of the 20th century and wrote The Philadelphia Story. And when The Philadelphia Story opened on Broadway in 1939, it was dedicated to my grandparents. Philip Barry had gone many times to this compound and to the big house on the compound, which is called Ardrossan, (laughs) named after a castle in Scotland. And Barry clearly selected, designed the, the setting and that world around a lot of things he'd observed in that house. I mean, it's full of, of small references to things that nobody else would notice, but that anyone who knows that, that world and that particular place would see were taken from that. As a result, it came to be said years later that my grandmother was the model for Tracy Lord. Whether or not she was <laughs> isn't entirely clear. They clearly were involved as influences in the 
creation of the play, but Tracy Lord was also heavily based on Catherine Hepburn, it's clear from Barry's papers. But my grandmother used it very successfully for her own purposes, and when she died at the age of 91, after being knocked down by her pet donkeys, her obituary was stripped across the top of the front page of the Philadelphia Inquirer in type only slightly smaller than what was used a few years later for the death of the Pope. (laughs) So she, she made it work for her. (laughs) <laughs> she made her mark. <laughs> so tell me about the process of writing this book. How long did it take to write? How long did it take to research? I did a couple of years of research, like maybe two and a half years of research before I even tried to put together anything like a proposal. My agent, who I admire enormously, Andrew Wiley, said, this kind of book, you want to know exactly where you're going before you try to sell it. You don't want an editor to determine that it ought to be something different. So I did what he suggested, and then I got to a point where I really, after a couple of years, I really felt I had to put something down. For one thing, I wanted to feel legitimate by having an advance. And so <laughs> I, I, but I couldn't do what he said, which was sort of write a scene and give him an outline. I couldn't do that without just writing the beginning of the book. So I sat down and I spent six months writing the first chapter, which was just 9,000 words. And I sent it to him and he sold it. He then asked me for an outline, which was quite difficult. And then he sold it in a day just wow. because his idea of how you do this what turned out to be absolutely true. So then I, I sold it, and then I asked for a three-year contract, which is, as you know, a relatively long contract. So I did get it in on time, and then I took it back up my own instigation. I got it in in early summer, and I said, can I have, after she, you know, I made my deadline, then I said, can I take it back, because there's a few things I wanted to discuss with my editor, and that, you know, I wanted to make some fixes. So I took it back for a few months, and then gave it back, and then the, the editing process and everything took, you know, a good year plus So I'd say, all in all, I I have to confess that it probably took six to seven years. That's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Did you have a place? Do you have a place you like to write? I like to write. If I had a padded cell, it would be a padded cell. I, I, I can't really work, working on a long project like a book, I I can't do it in my own apartment. There's too many virtuous diversions like laundry and (laughs) So my partner, who's also a writer, and I rented, also a former journalist, rented an apartment near our apartment. It was a one bedroom. We called it the bureau. And we would go over there every day. And he had, I had the bedroom and he had the living room. And we wrote there in really almost complete silence. He, he's even more focused than I am. <laughs> so we really didn't speak much in the course of the entire day. But it was great because there were no distractions. There were almost no, you know, pictures anywhere except stuff that related to the books we were working on. Wow. So that, that works for me. That's so nice. Yeah. That image. That's amazing. (laughs) Do you have, oh, what's coming next for you? Well, at the moment, I'm just doing some journalism. I definitely want to do another book, but I'm, I'm torn because I did learn a lot in doing this book in terms of writing Mm -hmm. and the value of being able to invest something personal and emotional in, in, in the storytelling in that the response to this book is so different from the response to my first book. I mean, just qualitatively different. So I'd like to be able to use that in a way. I don't certainly, I don't think I want to write another memoir, but I'd like to be able to figure out how to use that and apply it to my journalistic skills. And I haven't figured out the topic 
that will allow that yet, but I and hope mean, to. Meanwhile, you're like, I'm just going to do some journalism. Meanwhile, you won a Pulitzer Prize <laughs> at the New York Times. So I feel like your idea of just a little journalism might be different than some other well, people's idea. I, w- I was part of a team. Okay, fine. Part of a team. Yeah. I think that, I mean, that's that counts for in my book <laughs> for Pulitzer Prize winners. <laughs> what advice would you have to aspiring authors? Read. Read as much as you possibly can. And read, read the great works of literature, I would say. I mean, that doesn't mean they're not contemporary. There's wonderful contemporary great works, but there's also the last, you know, 200 years of American and British literature I would strongly recommend. And I would say give yourself plenty of time. I think that the value of time, mundane as it is, I think that makes, it seems like almost pedestrian, but you, you just have to have time to go back and back and back over what you're writing. I think I read somewhere recently that everybody's first drafts are dreadful, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, you like to think that, and occasionally you read about people who've whipped the thing off in seven months. I mean, I think you even hear it about E.M. Forster in some cases, but that does not that's not something I'm capable of, and I suspect that's that's a small class of genius that can do that. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank and, you, Zibby. It was uh, fun. Sharing your family history with us all. You're welcome. <laughs> You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. Once again, today's episode has been sponsored by Audible. I'm so excited that Audible has been working with Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to sponsor this episode. Audible.com slash Zibby. Check it out. If you think you don't have time to read, listen. Just listen the way you're listening to me right now and try out a book that way. You'll, you might really love it. Audible.com slash Zibby. Thanks. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Thank you.